HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm Kat Johnson, the communications director here at HRN, and this week's show is going to be a little bit different. As you may know, this Monday we held our second annual fundraising gala, Winter in the Garden, so things got a little bit hectic around here. Luckily, our amazing intern team stepped up to the plate and produced this episode fully on their own. So let's take a listen as they lead us down a somewhat hazardous path. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm Nina Medvinskaya, one of HRN's interns stepping in to bring you this week's stories. The intern crew and I took it upon ourselves to play with fire this week and investigate food's unappetizing side. Our curiosity about the dark and the delicious was sparked by the recent re-outbreak of E. coli-contaminated lettuce, along with a copious amount of foodborne illnesses investigated by the CDC this year. Our journey into the dangerous begins with my visit to a New York City restaurant, which serves up an infamously deadly dish. Since the genesis of humanity, people have been challenging their taste buds with adventurous flavors. Whether it's ingesting absurdly spicy peppers, sampling the infamously pungent Dorian fruit, or chowing down on deliberately raw meat, there's no shortage of ways to excite our stomachs and provoke our intestines. But eating one food in particular can have consequences that are more masochistic than nutritive, with terms more excruciating than appetizing. Fugu more commonly known as pufferfish or blowfish, can quickly change from being a risk-taker's bold meal to serving as their last lethal supper. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. That was Yuta Suzuki, owner of the Michelin-starred restaurant Suzuki and its omakase sushi bar, Satsuki. Yuta and his father, Chef Suzuki, have been serving fugu for several years, both in their previous establishment, Sushi Zen, and now in the almost two-year-old Suzuki Satsuki hybrid. They're one of several New York City food establishments that offers the dangerous fish, and they attribute their confidence to their fugu provider, Wako International. They're the only company that is serving fugu approved by the FDA. And the reason why they're approved by the FDA is because all the toxins are removed. And what you're getting here is all pre-cut, 
They've been inspected on both ends in, in the Japan export as well as the U.S. import to make sure there's no toxins in the packaging, in the content. Whenever guests are enthused and would like to try another restaurant that's serving fugu, I always tell them, make sure you see that certificate because you need to present that at the front desk or someplace very visible for the guests to see. Uh, otherwise, there are unfortunately routes where people can purchase fugu in the black market. And although the restaurant succeeds in mostly staying fugu drama free, there have been instances that remind Yuta about the intricacies involved in serving this dangerous and tricky ingredient. There was an instance where the guests brought live fugu to our previous establishment, asking us if we can prepare. And we obviously we can't, we're not going to prepare that fish because that would be a liability on our end. That was the awakening. That was like, oh, wow, you are able to purchase live. That thing is literally live and swimming in a bag of plastic. I'm like, wow. That to me was, was really scary, simply because I'm pretty sure nobody would do it, but you know, if they saw it on a documentary or, or something, and if they have a live fish, maybe they want to try and do it themselves. A DIY food, that would probably be the, the most lethal. <laughs> The poison that makes fugu so deadly is called tetradotoxin. It's 1,200 times deadlier than cyanide and is so potent that a lethal dose is smaller than the head of a pin. A single fish has enough poison in it to kill 30 people. Within half an hour, a person can go from eating dinner to dead. There was a guest that is intolerant to alcohol and he had fugu with one of our courses. And that had a little, very minute, but little bit of alcohol. The guests consumed that before they consumed fugu. And they automatically assumed, oh my God, I've been poisoned. And so we call the ambulance. The guy literally on the phone said, he's probably just a little drunk. And lo and behold, it was just him being drunk. Honestly, if the individual was poisoned, by the time the ambulance would have been here, he probably would have been dead already. Since the fish is delivered to the restaurant poison-free, Yuta and his chefs are confident in the product's safety. And as Suzuki is known for serving seasonal dishes, keeping fugu on the restaurant's winter menu is a no-brainer for them. I, I know it's an elusive fish. I know it's known for being deadly. But in Japan, it's, it's consumed seasonally. And we would love for any individual that's just enthused of, of, of trying fugu to give it a shot and uh, taste it for yourself. It, it will not kill you. Maybe. No, just kidding. No, it's, it's likely not, not going to kill you. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not about the death. It's more about the delicacy and what, what they serve during the seasons. Yes, Yuta. Nothing in life is certain. And perhaps fugu is a great reminder of life's inherent, chaotic, unstable, and risky nature. Although I trust that eating fugu at an established Japanese restaurant is perhaps no riskier than crossing a bustling New York City street, I'm personally not ready to take that fugu plunge. But for those of you seeking a foodie skydive, fugu's waiting for you this winter. Unfortunately, danger isn't just quarantined to the dishes we eat. Kevin Wheeler has the story on how today's political climate affects the people serving our meals.
One of the most revered Mexican restaurants in New York City is La Morada in Mott Haven. It's also one of the very few Bronx restaurants to be recognized by the Michelin Guide for its traditional Oaxacan fare. Nowhere else in New York can you find mole blanco made with pine nuts, chilies, and garlic. La Morada is run by an undocumented family from Oaxaca, the Saavedras. Marco Saavedra is the 28-year-old son of the owner, Natalia Mendez. And when he isn't reading or writing poetry, he's waiting tables and answering the constantly ringing phone at La Mirada. Marco is one of Obama's dreamers, and after watching his parents work hard in the U.S. and establish La Mirada in 2009, he knows the struggles of running a restaurant while undocumented. Particular to being undocumented, I think it's just like, you know, having, um, not having access to like loans and stuff from the bank and stuff. and. Uh, and so being very cash-strapped to begin the restaurant, right, just just resting on the loans from our own family, but then also just navigating like a lot of the paperwork and the licensing was really hard. To help get the resources to start La Mirada, Marco's father worked as a custodian, and Marco and his mother sold tacos from a stand near a park in Whitestone, Queens. The whole family saved up. But once they had saved enough, it didn't get any easier. Instead, the Saavedras found that some accountants were eager to prey on undocumented entrepreneurs. When we first opened, like, the accountant was really terrible that my parents had found. and He wasn't filing stuff on time and not making payments on time, but still charging my folks. The Saavedras were able to overcome their early financial difficulties thanks to the quality of their food. Food blogs and media outlets, like the New York Times, championed the Saavedras' cooking, creating a new influx of customers. But for any undocumented family, the threat of deportation looms large under the Trump administration. In the eight months after his inauguration, ICE made 2,031 arrests in New York City and its surrounding areas, according to the Marshall Project. That figure includes a 225% increase in arrests of immigrants with no criminal background. What if he starts making these mass raids? Um, on the community like that's like probably like the worst case scenario and even for that i think that it has helped to have friends in media and in politics that can advocate for us if there is a worst case scenario so i think that has also been a benefit for the restaurant but i mean i think we were always thinking short-term long-term good and bad outcomes for the Saavedras, the outcomes of starting a restaurant and living in the u.s have been mostly good even more than they could have dreamed of when they crossed the border in 1993. Many outsiders would probably see their story as an example of the American dream made real. Marco, however, would prefer not to cheapen and simplify his family's story with that label, what with all that could have gone wrong. And so, yeah, I definitely see, like, you know, semblances of the American dream here, and I know that there's also, like, a lot of critique of it, too, because we don't want to just be, you know, this model example and because it easily, like within all these 20 years, 25 years of being undocumented, we could have had a tragedy that could have ruined all of this or made all of this not possible. La Mirada was made possible not just by the Saavedra's hard work, but because of favorable rent at La Mirada's South Bronx location. It's an area that is quickly gentrifying, with luxury apartment buildings popping up among public housing complexes. The Saavedra's lease on the current La Mirada space expires in 2020. As of now, the Saavedra's are negotiating with their landlord on a favorable lease renewal. 
But with its sustained success over the past five years, Marco has said that La Mirada is facing a steep rent increase and could possibly close if the increase is too great. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We'll return with a story about some unfavorable ways that the meat industry impacts our environment. Stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise in affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Welcome back to Meet in 3. For our next story, Dylan Hoyer investigates the meat industry's environmental consequences. We are already experiencing the effects of global warming, from raging wildfires to more frequent hurricanes and severe droughts. According to a special report released by a United Nations panel in October, the effects of climate change will be more dire, happen sooner, and be more difficult to prevent than formerly anticipated. Curbing warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius was a lofty goal of the Paris Agreement. Now it's thought to be vital. Governments, NGOs, and individuals have been left to reassess their strategies for cutting emissions, and this means looking in new directions. What people don't realize is that the livestock sector is as much of a climate change contributor as the transport sector. Shafali Sharma works for the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy. This past year, she co-authored an important study quantifying the environmental impact of big meat and dairy companies. We hear a lot in terms of antibiotics when it comes to meat or food safety or animal welfare, but we never talk about climate change. The livestock sector accounts for almost 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Not only is animal agriculture one of the primary drivers of climate change, it's primary driver of deforestation, topsoil erosion, water pollution, species extinction. That's Keegan Kuhn, one of the documentary filmmakers behind Cowspiracy and What the Health. He explains that the effects of the livestock industry go beyond polluting the atmosphere and can actually make the earth more vulnerable to warming. When you clear forest to make room to grow crops to feed livestock, you lose the ability of the earth to sequester the carbon from the atmosphere. So it's this double-fold impact. Despite popular films like Cowspiracy and reputable scientific reports like Shafali's, the livestock industry has largely avoided public scrutiny. It's not so well understood that the meat industry is a huge contributor of climate change. It's because most people don't know meat companies. We might know McDonald's. We might know our local grocery store. We might even know a certain brand that we like to buy. But nobody knows JBS. JBS is, by and large, the biggest meat processor in the whole world. But nobody knows JBS. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. 
Yet unlike the oil industry, the lack of attention towards the livestock sector has left it totally unregulated. Most companies actually don't even report their emissions. Out of those that actually do report their emissions, it's like apples and oranges. Each company has its own methodology, so it's hard to even compare between them. And most of them don't actually count the supply chain in their emissions. And the supply chain is the animals themselves. And that's where 80 to 90 percent of their emissions come from. Shafali's report for the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy did calculate the emissions released by livestock and its evaluations were dramatically different from what meat companies are recording themselves. The numbers self-reported by JBS, for instance, accounted for only 3% of the total greenhouse gases that this study concluded are produced by the company. Livestock emissions are an important part of this equation because agricultural animals release two potent greenhouse gases, methane and nitrous oxide. Ruminant animals, cows, goats, sheep, produce a tremendous amount of methane gas in their digestion process. So when they're breaking down their natural foods, it produces methane gas. And so they belch that out or flatulate it out or comes out in their waste. And that goes into our atmosphere. And nitrous oxide is what's released when you have these kinds of manure lagoons, which we see so many of in the United States, where you have big feedlots or massive factory farms of pigs. Reports on greenhouse gases typically focus on carbon dioxide. But livestock emissions are different. For one thing, they are a lot more powerful. Methane traps 30 times more heat than carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide is exponentially stronger. But these gases are also expelled from the atmosphere more quickly. Here is the key, right? If we are able to dramatically change how we produce and consume, we would reduce dramatically the methane and nitrous oxide which in a short amount of time would be removed from the atmosphere and create a big impact. Because livestock emissions have relatively short lifespans, there's a bigger incentive to reduce. But how to cut back on these greenhouse gases remains a matter of debate. The technical fixes around these things are, oh, well, maybe we can change the diet of cows. Maybe we can give them some medicine so that there's less ammonia, which then turns into some of these greenhouse gases. These are techno fixes. The bottom line is if we continue to raise and slaughter as many animals as we do in the industrial model, we will keep increasing our net emissions. Shafali argues that efforts to reduce the livestock sector's climate footprint will be insufficient so long as this industry remains unregulated. Tinkering around the edges is not going to cut it anymore. I think we need transformative change. The clock is ticking, but the fight against global warming has been gradual on all fronts. Governments have not agreed to the comprehensive policies recommended by Shafali and other climate experts. Sadly, it's still not making it into the Paris Agreements. Agriculture wasn't even addressed at all. Environmental groups have likewise been hesitant to support this cause. Cowspiracy highlighted the lack of attention directed towards the livestock industry on the part of NGOs like Greenpeace, Oceana, and Rainforest Action Network. Since the film was released in 2014, there's been a slow but growing response. Rainforest Action Network, who didn't have a campaign about animal agriculture, now has a, a conscious eating campaign. and still not one of their major focuses, even though the leading cause of rainforest destruction is animal agriculture, but it's a step forward. Keegan remains hopeful because he believes the livestock industry can be powerfully influenced at the individual level. Talking about real changes that people can actually do is empowering. You can talk about how we need these massive infrastructure changes on energy, and that's absolutely important, but what can individuals really do to affect policy?
When it comes to individual changes, that's something we all do. We can vote three times a day with food we choose to buy and eat, and that can have a huge impact on the planet. Keegan has co-authored two cookbooks designed to help individuals transition to a plant-based diet. Check them out, along with his documentaries, Cowspiracy and What the Health. To learn more, you can also read Shafali's report, titled Emissions Impossible, How Big Meat and Dairy Are Heating Up the Planet. And listen to a longer interview with her on episode 269 of HRN's series, What Doesn't Kill You. And going forward, you can expect this issue will become increasingly relevant as climate change intensifies and more pressure is put on the meat industry to make reforms. Just last week, Smithfield, the world's largest pork company, announced a new initiative to harness natural gas from pig manure. The company is proposing to use livestock emissions to generate electricity and hopes to launch the program in the next year. As promising as the proposal sounds, Shafali's colleague Tara Ritter from the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy called the strategy a, quote, false solution to climate change. Tara acknowledges the technology Smithfield is using does reduce methane emissions, but asserts that it will do, quote, nothing to mitigate the harmful air and water pollution caused by pig lagoons. Have you thought about whether your diet truly celebrates your heritage? In our next story, Ariyama Long explores why we should consider the ties between our culture and our meals. Food is much more than what you eat. It's the warmth of our families and traditions. So what's the danger of losing one's food heritage? In order to talk about my Puerto Rican heritage, I was going to have to go straight to the source. Say hi, Mom. Hi. (laughs) My mom, Solianda N.Y. Garuba, is a graphic designer from Brooklyn and a self-identified New Yorican, a hybrid New York Puerto Rican. I don't embrace a lot of the food heritage because of the lifestyle that I'm currently living does not, um, you know, allow for certain, you know, ingredients or, you know, types of food that um, historically would have been celebrated. I have separated from that part of of my, you know, family heritage. Um, That's kind of what happens when you when you're living in America. Um, customs that that are happening here, mainstream customs, become more customary to you, and customs become you know less. I don't think it's bad, but to lose your own, yeah, a little. It can be a little sad. In fact, in 2016, Puerto Ricans comprised 5.6% of the total population in New York State and about 8% of the city. With Hurricane Maria ravaging the island last year, many more people have relocated to the city since. Well, New Yorkans are, you know, born and raised in New York or raised in New York because... um, you know, lots of people migrated here from Puerto Rico, but um, adapted quickly to what was going on in New York at the time and the social and economic influences um, that were taking place when they arrived. As a second-generation New Yorkian, 
I wasn't taught to speak Spanish by my mother, and my grandmother was the last direct line to any customs we had. So my mother has passed on, um, but when she was alive, it was always a celebration of food. My family uh, initially and historically, um, you know, we are tethered to food celebration and food relevance. My mother and I did spend hours in the kitchen, though, making arroz con pollo, gandules, platanos, and paella, mixed in with other southern dishes. We have since moved further away from it. Unfortunately, I couldn't call my abuela, but I did have someone who volunteered. Gloria Flores, grandmother of five, goes out of her way to bring her family together through food. I try to cook dinner and make them come to dinner <laughs> so we can always have that tradition going. And um, as far as speaking it, I try to encourage them to pick up at least a few words here and there, which now they, you know, my grandchildren uh, have the opportunity to take it in school. Although it's a different type of uh, Spanish, but you can still communicate. They can still communicate with me. And I try to, especially the younger ones, I speak it in Spanish and then I try to translate it to them. Gloria's food is a keystone of her heritage. We're losing a lot of uh, traditions in the household. You know, I mean, I still keep mine. I, I try to explain to them and tell them how I make it and just so they can hear it at least, you know. The good news is there are plenty of people who are actively maintaining their food heritage. Brooklyn-based entrepreneur Francis Roberto of Coquito and Delicacies by Francis turned a beloved holiday drink into a booming business. Coquito is a sweet coconut and cream drink with cinnamon and rum flavoring, sort of like eggnog with the taste of the island. I, I wanted to carry my traditions for years to come and pass them out to my kids and hopefully their their kids. Every time I, I, I make something, I think about the way my grandmother used to make it. And I put all my flavors and all my seasonings and I put all my love into the food just as she would make it. So I always try to make everything as traditional as possible and not not Americanize it or or change the flavors too much. Frances strives to welcome other cultures and foods in her home as well. So people who have um, lost their cultures or have left their islands or have lost a family member who they've loved and didn't really teach them about their past, I would say do some research, focus on your background, don't lose yourself. You can always learn about your culture, about your heritage. You will be surprised the wonders and, and the happiness that it brings amongst your family. And this not only goes to the Puerto Rican culture, it goes with any culture. Being involved brings a lot of families together. She has a point. We all have a food heritage that we should celebrate, even if it's as simple as something grandma used to make for the holidays. That's our show. Thanks for listening. 
Special thanks to Dylan Hoyer, Ariama Long, and Kevin Wheeler for their reporting. On the next episode of Meet and 3, we'll tell you about a misfortune that struck our neighboring food producers. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, but Amanda Wong is responsible for engineering this episode. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.